Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Now look at my front butt. Have you ever seen any of the TV 
a lot when it uh there's a lot of directors who uh put together their movies uh i mean obviously we've talked about uh Jodorowsky's Dune before and you saw the massive yeah. number of storyboards and illustrations that they put together for that comparable to when George Lucas originally did the first, you know, the first Star Wars film and all of the different uh the storyboards and illustrations they put together there and if you ever look at, into that stuff a lot of times it's really cool to see how close to what they imagined on paper came out on the screen uh yeah it's it's a neat process. I never really thought about that when I was a kid. When I was a young film fan, I just figured, you know, you always see that classic shot in every movie when someone's playing a director where they just hold their hands up in the little square and, you know, kind of pan around a bit like, oh, yeah, this is going to look great on camera. You know, that's the way they make it seem like films are directed. But, yeah, it's really neat to to compare uh yeah storyboards to the finished product on a lot of the movies that you and I love. Yeah. There's so many movies about making movies that make it glorious. This is right. a romantic job. And then you watch American <laughs> movies. Right. <laughs> uh. Well that so was Steve Buscemi, which we'll get to in the nineties. What is it in the soup? Uh, no, I, it's, I don't think it's in the soup. That was, uh, that is one from the nineties, but, uh, I don't think that's the movie you're thinking of. Uh, you oh, know what I mean? Is, the one with the scene with, uh, well, basically it shows how the whole film just evolves and just becomes a fucking yeah. disaster. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember. This is going to be an on and off series. And this is not because we love the 90s so much. This is, we're going to take you behind the scenes. This is what they call a filler series. Here's the story. Uh, what are we going to do next week? I don't know. I don't want to think about those things. Boom. Let's do this in 1990. Okay. Fuck it. <laughs> All right. Well, here we are. More romantic than that, but well, you know, we're talking about the 1990s. So you can either uh, continue to listen tonight, or you can find another podcast. <laughs> tonight we're talking and about our out favorite in 1990. Theme. We got to go back to the 80s. So basically it was 
the first film to come out in January. And yes, yeah. January has traditionally been a dump month, so you could MPI didn't expect this movie to do shit. And I was curious about that too, because when I started doing some research trying to, you know, rev up, think of some movies that came out in 1990, I was surprised that that one was there because I, I own that movie on VHS. So I guess I associate it more with the eighties than the nineties, but yeah, you're right. They dumped it. They, they did not have much faith in it. And I mean, I can see why it's, it's a grim, it's a grim film, you know, and you and I have talked about this before. Every time you look at a list of the 10 most disturbing films of all time, Portrait of a Serial Killer is usually on there. I mean, but, yeah. I mean, it's this a really well-done film, you know. Yeah. Got an x on Tones. Tones. Right? I mean, it's like, not with it. Okay, how can we catch this? Uh, we don't know how. Why? Tone of the whole movie is disturbing. We're giving you an yeah. on that. Yeah. And it's... then... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, no, I was just going to agree with you completely. Like, yeah, it just has an un... You're just unnerved the whole time. It's the way, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the color palette. Like it has like just kind of a grim, uh, color to it the whole time, even though most like everything in the movie is blue and gray. It just kind of has like an unnerving color palette that kind of makes you feel unsettled anyway. And then you know that the main characters are killing people and, Obviously, we're privy to that. It's not a spoiler by any sense of the imagination. We're we're shown it in you know mm. not in real time. A lot of the dead bodies. That has one of the most disturbing openings ever. It don't show no killings, but you see the plates, and then you see him left, and then you hear the violence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you see the dead bodies, and you hear the murders, but. If anyone hasn't seen it, it's a it is a really disturbing opening sequence and yeah, you see the dead bodies and they play the audio of the murder over the footage of the dead bodies, but you don't actually see the murders. It's actually uh that's actually a very, you know, I think that's kind of a leftover from more of the art house horror films of the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, and I think it was oh, kind of no unusual. way to say that this isn't an art house film. Oh, and oh, no. speaking of art house, if you remember, even the poster, that amazing poster of this by Joel Coleman, MPAA said, no, you're not going to use that poster. Right. Wasn't Henry one of the first, not one of the first, but more likely one of the last movies that they wanted to give an X rating to just based on the violence, but they fought back and got an R. I think. No, it was released unrated. They would not rate this movie. 
Oh, un- yeah, that's true. Yep, you're right. My VHS copy of it is unrated. And if you want yep. to know what they did with the poster, look at the VHS. It's like this giant black box with this with the artwork. It's this little tiny square that you have. You've got the magnifying glass to see. <laughs> right? Or there's a second one that just shows Henry looking in the mirror without any of the artwork. Tom Tolls and uh, Michael Rooker play them as normal guys. Yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of people probably know Tom Tolls nowadays from, I think, movies that he the movies that he's done with Rob Zombie like the younger audience might know him from those movies uh yeah you know and, but and uh Michael Rooker they would know from Guardians of the Galaxy or uh um, he's been in he's, the Walking he's been Dead. in a, yeah yeah. Imagine if they but, would release the Blu-ray at the time when Michael Rooker was popular from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and then I put on the Blu-ray cover featuring Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, <laughs> he liked him in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I think I've told you this before, but I always I can't wait for the day that my mother is walking through a video store. And she sees a copy of, uh, you know, um, Dead Alive. And it says, from the director of <laughs> Lord of the Rings, because my mom loves those Lord of the Rings movies. I can't wait till the day she finds a copy of uh, Dead Alive. And she's like, oh, well, the same guy who directed those Lord of the Rings movies, well, this is going to be great. <laughs> I. I have a feeling she's not going to like Dead Alive as much as she liked the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> and moving on, we have two standard bullet plate cop movies. Yeah, downtown. This is weird because the two main cops are Anthony Edwards and Forrest Whitaker. Do you expect to see in an action cop movie? <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't know. I think downtown is mostly forgettable. Like, I don't know. You're right. It is weird that Anthony Edwards and Forrest Whitaker are the buddy cops. I mean, it seems like one of those, uh, it seems like one of those things where they were just, because we'll see this as we discuss more of the films from the nineties, the, the mismatched the mismatched cops the odd couple cop teams of the 90s we they always just rip off. yeah and they all seemed like they had to have a white cop and a black cop ha ha oh my goodness yeah you know and like, the next is is eternal affairs with uh uh Andy Garcia and uh, hmm. uh, the guy from Pretty Woman, damn it, Richard Gere, and it's past. Yeah, and I, next I, is a 
Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, I liked Internal Affairs. Uh, I liked Internal Affairs fairly well, but I don't think it's aged that well. Now it, you know, now it kind of feels like a product of its time. Like, you watch it, and then yeah. you compare it to, you compare it now to, like, more modern, you know, like, cop dramas, and it, it's kind of like, meh. Um, I think well, Eternal you can compare Affairs. Well, another one that's coming up in 1990, which we'll talk about later, which is one of the most badass fucking cop films of all time. And next is another film that holds a world record for the most time since to the NDAA, and that's 22 times. And that's Leatherface at Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Yeah, 22 submissions to the fucking NDAA. And, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's not even, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was far more bloody and violent than 3. I mean, but, yeah, I don't know. I I don't really care for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. The the one thing I do like about it uh, is it was written by uh, David Scow. Who, whose work I first discovered because he wrote novels before he got into uh, before he got into yeah. filmmaking, and he cro- uh, he crossed the bridge by writing for Fangoria, which you and I were talking about earlier. Uh, so he kind of went from writing novels to writing articles for Fangoria to writing screenplays, and I do enjoy his work. He has like a tongue-in-cheek. Uh, kind of humor to his writing, which I really like. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't really care for thing about, Yeah, I like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, but the best thing about it is and they made him cut out the part that made it best. Viva Mortensen is a gay cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I forgot Viggo Mortensen was in that at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how they cut out the best line. Well, the girl's tied to the chair, and she's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to rape me now? And he looked at her and then looked over at and said, oh, honey, I don't want you. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's there boyfriend going, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also, I do like the fact that Ken Foray is in that movie. Like, you know, we talk about this all the time. But, uh, you know, the original Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite movies. And that part of what makes it one of my favorite movies is I really love uh, Ken Foray's uh, acting and, you know, his performance in that. So whenever he pops up in another yeah. movie, I'll watch it. I'll watch it, you know. That's a guy that, why didn't he get more roles than he did? I mean, Ken Foray would have been a badass in an action film in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. He could have been the black cop in a white white cop, black cop buddy movie, you know? He would have been awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moving on, we got a weird one. The Plot Against 
Perry. It was shot by this guy. Let's see. Michael Rollier. He shot it in the 60s, and the movie vanished, and it didn't pop up again until New Yorker Films put it out in the 1990s. Right. Yeah, I always... New Yorker Films were the one who put out the VHS of Silo. They were the ones who were like the criterion of VHS. They put out right. all the art films. They put out uh, Silo uh, films. Uh, what's his name? They did Berlin, Alexander Platt. Yeah. Yeah, the plot against Harry is kind of a weird movie, but yeah. Um, I thought that was weird when I was doing some research on uh, for this show. Because I always thought that movie came out in the 60s, and it's true, it did. But it wasn't released, you're right, until I think the first screening of it, or perhaps it screened back in 69 or whenever they filmed it. But, it, yeah, it didn't get a proper screening until the 1990s Cannes Film Festival. So, um, yeah. It's I don't know. It's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird movie, but yeah, it's uh I guess I can see uh we were talking about this when we were talking about Sean Connery. Um when uh uh Woody Allen did his version of uh uh what do you call it, the James Bond uh, Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino Royale. This movie has that kind of that same vibe. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. it's like, you know, it's not a spy movie, but it's kind of like a gangster movie with a sense of humor. You know, yeah. like, you know, so it's a fun movie, but it is kind of weird to mention it in in our discussion about films that came out in 1990s and technically it was completed in the late 60s but you know it is weird but yeah you're right um and now we have ski patrol which if you watch usa up all night it's an ass it's an ass all we got is it's an ass (laughs) the only good thing i can say about ski patrol is that uh, it was uh, it was written by Paul Feig, or he was one of the screenwriters on it. There were uh, I'm pretty sure Ski Patrol is one of those movies that went through a lot of hands uh, in the screenplay, uh, you know, development because it's all over the map. It's a ridiculous movie, yeah. but but yeah, uh, you know, Paul Feig did uh did have a hand in writing that movie which is one thing that I always bring up because uh my my wife uh really loves his movies and I'm always like well if you love bridesmaids and ghostbusters you should watch ski patrol but she knows I'm just trying to fool her into doing something she doesn't want to do you know 
just like in the bedroom, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> and then, have you ever wondered why they say that your from brain dead to dead alive? Yeah. I didn't. I I thought about that today because again, when I was doing some research for this show, I came across this brain dead, and I was like, "Oh, I totally forgot about this movie." Yeah, I totally forgot about this movie. Is fucking amazing. It is amazing. movie to me, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's got Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton in it, which is an ongoing Hollywood joke. Can you tell the difference between Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton? Well, now they're both in the same movie together, so you have to be able to tell them apart. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I always thought this was uh, I always thought this was directed by um, uh, once again, Brain Fart. Uh, who are the guys that we always talk about that uh, direct the Lovecraft uh, adaptation? Um, you know who I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah. Friggin' Dead Alive and, or uh, Oh Peter Jackson. No, no, yeah, that's Peter Jackson. No, that's not what I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, Reanimator. Uh, who directed Reanimator? Oh, Stuart Gordon. Yeah, this has a very Stuart Gordon esque vibe. You yeah, may, you, I, I, I look up enough to who wrote this. No, who wrote who wrote it? Charles Beaumont. Oh well, there you go. He's yeah, the guy that wrote all the cold films for Corman back in the sixties. Yeah, and he wrote a bunch of episodes of The Twilight Zone, too. And I think I think some of his episodes of The Twilight Zone were uh, based on, well, I don't know if they were based on Lovecraft stories, but they were very similar in tone to some of Lovecraft's uh, more earthbound stuff. Not the go lack, eat us all kind but, of thing, but more... More of like, yeah, yeah, you know. But if you haven't seen Brain Dead, this one you need to. It is just damn. And this one you don't need to look at spoilers too because you need to be going to the confusion. Yeah, yeah. It's like like I said. uh, And it's very Lynchian too. Yeah, yeah. No, and like like I said, if you're a fan of uh you know, like Reanimator or like uh Brian Yuzna films, um, you know, I think you'll definitely groove on it. It definitely has that same type of feel to me. It's got like you know, those movies that uh, you know, those guys directed that were based on 
Lovecraft stories, whereas this yeah. one was was an original. Uh, yeah. I, I, I assume that it was one scene where it shows uh, Pullman just opening up his head and then those things come out of it. After that, I was <laughs> like hiding in the corner with a stick, going, "Okay, movie, where the fuck are you going to take me now? You already got me." <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, I I totally forgot about that movie until again today when I was doing some research for the show tonight, and I was like, "Holy shit, yeah!" And I was kind of surprised because, like I said, uh, I always thought I always thought that that was from the same from the same team that did the, you know, the Brian Yuzna, the, you know, reanimator, all, all those Lovecraft yeah. movies. I always thought that was those two, but you know, Hey, it's good to see that someone else, uh, went out and did something. Um, and yeah, I can't think of another movie, uh, that he, that that guy directed, um, but you're, you're right. He did work with Roger Corman a lot, so I'm sure he's got some other credits under his belt. But yeah, that one's probably his yeah. best. Talking, <laughs> he wrote Talking Tina. You know, Twilight Zone. He wrote Talking Tina. Uh, the Laughing Man. Gotta love Talking Tina. I've seen it at a convention a couple of years ago an actual Talking Tina doll with uh, the evil and good switch where if you flip it, it changes what she says. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. They, people they, like, I'm Talking Tina and I love you. And then you flip it down <laughs> the bed. I'm Talking Tina and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> right? Yeah. They have you obviously you've seen that episode of The Simpsons where they goof on that when uh Yeah. the talking crusty doll that keeps trying to kill Homer and then they finally call the repairman and when he opens up the back he's like, Well here's your trouble, you got this thing switched to evil <laughs> And if you uh, remember the repairman had Beaumont on his uh Wow, I don't remember that And that's crazy Because I thought I knew Every piece of Simpsons trivia ever I'm going to have to watch that episode again tonight (laughs) And next we got a movie That you would think The way that we love it nowadays Is many sequels As this motherfucker has And that was a success one of the biggest flops of 1990, and that would be Tremor. Yeah. How did they screw up telling this movie? I mean, I, every time I go, I can't remember which one of the streaming services it is that I'm on that has it, but when I go flipping through my streaming at night trying to find something to watch, they're trying to get me to watch a new Tremors movie, and I just can't do it, man. I I I, I love the original Tremors. I think it's a really good movie. Yeah. It has, you know, it, it's a really fun movie, and it, you know, it's it's cool. And I've seen a couple of the other ones, but yeah, I mean, 
You know me. We've talked about this. Well, we've talked about this before when it comes to me. Like, I either want one movie, I either want one standalone film, or I want a trilogy. I don't want things to just keep spiraling out. You know, you and I have talked about the Halloween films. We've talked about the Friday the 13th films. We've talked about the, you know, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, either give me one movie that tells me the whole story or give me three movies that tells me the whole story. But don't just keep piling on, you know, like, I mean. Yeah, Ron Shelton has said that he was pissed off that they didn't put the best tagline in the trailer. Right? <laughs> and that is, I found the acid! Tremors <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is no. the first Tremors is just flooded. And yeah. it flopped because it had that dumb trailer with the, not showing the monsters, not telling you what the movie's about. All you know is that it's a music video for uh, and you know that's kind of a funny thing to think about uh you know we're talking about watching these movies uh from the 90s but yeah if if you're interested in some of the movies that we're talking about Go back and watch the trailers and look at the way that that the movies were represented back then. Because you're right, a lot of times uh, the trailers make the movie look kind of goofy or boring. I mean, not to say that there's a difference nowadays. You know every friggin' uh, movie trailer today for a horror movie or a sci-fi movie is going to have some downbeat and some downbeat version of a friggin' popular song from from the 90s, you know? I mean, how many times am I going to have to listen to a fucking downbeat version of Creep by Radiohead in a horror movie trailer? Like, you know... And then I'll watch the movie and I'll actually like it, but the trailer does not entice me. And, you know, I think that's a big thing. And, and, you know, we were talking earlier about like Roger Corman and a lot of our favorite directors like Joe Dante, uh, you know, got his start cutting trailers for Roger Corman. And, you know, they found ways to use music and images they would even take images that weren't in the movie and just stick them in a trailer to make you want to go see the movie. Yeah. I don't know what the heck. I don't know what the heck happened in the '90s, but somehow the art of making a trailer just died out. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a reason why every one of our trailer compilations are '60s, '70s, '80s. Yeah. Right. I have. Like, I have a okay. bunch of them. What? I have a bunch, and this I know a lot of my friends think this is weird, but I have dozens of VHS tapes, DVDs, Blu-rays, that all they are is just compilations of trailers from the 70s and 
you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. And they're like, how can you sit here and watch this? And I'm like, it's the best part of the movies condensed into a minute and 45 seconds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't I sit here and watch it? And, see, and here are two films that even back then I was like, what the fuck were they thinking? The first is Flashback with Kiefer Sutherland. And then it's Hopper playing a hippie who stole a train and it's, I can't really explain the movie because it's one part, man, the 60s were cool, and one part we're having an action film on the train, and they don't mix. Yeah, that's one of those movies that seems like they had, like, the studio had two separate scripts, and then they just decided to mash them together to try to make one movie. You're right. Um, It is... It is weird, like, it it can't tell, and I know this is, I know this is um, typical of a lot of comedy films, you know, you get the comedy up front, and then at the end of the comedy film, everyone has to learn a lesson, and the serious stuff has to happen, which I absolutely do not agree with. I, I, you know, as a comedian and a comedy fan, I don't think that's the way comedy films have to go. You can be funny all the way till the end. And even if that ending means that, oh, the guy and the girl that broke up at the beginning have to get back together at the end, they can still say something funny to each other to, you know. One of my favorites by George Carlin ends like no lesson. There's no moral. That's it. On to the next joke. (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, you know, like Larry David always said, uh, his one rule for when he was the right the head writer on Seinfeld, as one of the creators, he was like, no hugging, no learning. You know, like not every comedy yeah. has to end with a with a lesson. You know. Um, and speaking yeah. of bad buddy cop comedy, next one we can keep talking about this because it's another bad one. It's heart condition with Denzel Washington and Bob Hoskins where Denzel Washington gets shot but Bob Hoskins sees a heart transplant so he gets a heart transplant and it turns out they're fucking the same hooker. Uh, yeah. That's another movie that has not aged well. I mean... They say it's it was a buddy bad back then, man. Well, yeah, it was bad back then, but now it especially and you know, you know me, I'm not a big you know, I'm I'm a far left liberal, but I still agree that everyone should be able to do, you know, I don't think we should take down all the... We talked about this a couple weeks ago on the show. I don't think we should be tearing down Confederate monuments and all that stuff. I think, you know, history should be should stand as it is. We It's the history of our country, and even if we don't agree with it, we should ex- at least accept that it happened and move forward rather than try to erase what happened in the past. However, this movie is fucking racist, and I think we should probably erase it. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, I want you to notice when we died, I didn't mention this before. Uh, right now we're in the pre uh, Kevin Smith Tarantino years. This, right. just listen to the types of movies that came out in the years before that. It should really explain why is another reason why both of them really exploded on the scene and why we were so excited for their movies. Right? Then next is, well, the big star of the early part of 90s, Steven Seagal with Hard to Kill. Yeah. You know, I like some Steven Seagal films. This isn't one of them. (laughs) (laughs) That, I, I'm sure Hard to Kill was the first Steven Seagal movie that I watched. And at the time, uh, you know, I think me and my friends were really into like John Woo action films, and oh god, yeah. And once you've gone hard boiling the killer, you can't go back, right? And I think Hard to Kill. I think they. I think they worked really hard to try to uh, imitate that style. Um, and wasn't wasn't hard to kill directed by the same guy that directed the Karate Kid? I I'm pretty sure it was. And so Bruce Malmuth or whatever. Yeah, Bruce Bruce Malmuth. Yeah, um, yeah, he directed the Karate Kid. I think he directed the first two no, Karate Kid directed the Karate Kid. The same guy who directed Rocky. Huh. So, yeah, Bruce Malmuth. One of the joke came out when the Karate Kid came out was the Karate Kid. Oh, Bruce Malmuth was in the Karate Kid. He wasn't, he didn't direct yeah. it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think There's Hard only to one Kill. thing in Hard to Kill and this the guy who really hadn't got his due yet. Not William Sandler. Yep, right. <laughs> well, we've talked about uh, William Sandler before. Him. Yeah, we've talked about him on on the show before. He, yeah, he's a great uh, he's a great actor. Um, I think my favorite role of his was uh, Shawshank Redemption. I think he's amazing. I, I think everyone's amazing in Shawshank Redemption. That movie is just perfect. If you don't like Shawshank Redemption, then you don't have to listen to my opinion on film ever again, because I think that movie is perfectly yeah, written, you're directed. you how good the year that Pulp Fiction came out was. I mean, just yeah. damn. Right? But, and you're forgetting, he was great to death in Bill and Ted's focus journey, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot he I've was got a great ass tool. I do work on the kind of settings every night. I have to stare, master. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 
I think Hard to Kill was kind of trying to imitate those John Woo movies that you and I were talking about before, like John Woo's late 80s action movies. And I think that's why when it originally yeah. came out, I I enjoyed it when it originally came out. But now I'm, you know, all these years later, I'm on Steven Seagal. I'm just exhausted by his nonsense. You know, uh, I, and this is another one of those things that I think about. Like, I try to extract um, the artist from their art. You know, like, this goes back to what we were just talking about. Like, I don't think we should necessarily, you know, I was joking about, getting rid of movies because they're seemingly racist. I mean, I don't want to see blazing saddles disappear from the earth because they say the N word a bunch of times, you know, like it's a great movie. Yeah, we should well, appreciate you money to get rid of the more of racist films. You have to get rid of my worst of this year. And oh yes, yeah, I've already got it picked out for next month. Uh, right. All I gotta say is, one film had a butterfly in it on the poster, and it was a good film. And then you had uh-huh. another one, and good God. Oh. But, but to close out there, and we're now in the start game where we got loose cannons. The one that tells us our cousins got Van Eckley playing this beautiful, goofy guy with Gene Hackman. And then halfway through the film, you find out that the reason that Van Aykroyd's acting goofy is one of the darkest fucking backstories out you can think of. <laughs> All right. Oh, Tell the story. Oh, partner and killed his wife and child in front of him and then tortured him for 48 hours. What the fuck? <laughs> well, uh, Cannon's. Uh, was directed by Bob Clark, who was more famously known. Well, I'm not sure of the timeline, but I mean, he directed Black Christmas, which is a dark and disturbing horror movie that I think you and I have written yeah. about on our blog. Um, yeah, but, but what I mean is like, uh, it's like if we have this beautiful kid movie, and then all of a sudden, all the cute animals get slaughtered with a machine gun. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like tonal shit. Tonal shit is supposed to change directions, not break your fucking neck. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Well, Bob Clark wow. was kind of a weird director anyway. I mean, we're talking, we're talking the difference between Black Christmas and Porky's, you know? Like, I mean... He he went from full on like slasher movie to like horny teen movie like yeah he a Christmas story yeah Christmas story yeah uh, but a Christmas story actually is probably a better version of Loose Cannons and I don't mean that in as much as that uh, it has a similar storyline but. I think A Christmas Story kind of balances his comedy and his dark side the best of all of his movies, you know? I think so, anyway. You know. But, yeah. 
that that was a weird speaking of bad comedy. Who the fuck thought it was a good idea even back then to take John Larroquette and Percy <laughs> Alley and put him in a comedy about about horrible <laughs> families? <laughs> I actually have a copy of Madhouse on VHS. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. It's just one of those movies I stumbled across at a thrift store or a, you know, video store one day and was just like, yeah, I don't know. Plus, it's got Dennis Miller in it. You got to love that. <laughs> That's the one thing about early nineties comedy is they didn't know how to do comedy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't land as well today. Like I mean, I don't I didn't see it back in nineteen ninety. You know, it was just one of those movies that I uh you know, that I bought because I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, I thought it looked funny. We but... had a legal paper view. I watched everything in real time. So I went through a lot of suffering. If I had known now that... Now we're on Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if I had known that the same director would go on to direct uh, some Look Who's Talking movies, I probably wouldn't have uh, found it that interesting, but we didn't have that knowledge back then. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we did have knowledge on this one because no one went to see this in the theater, and then when we got it on videotape, another better version of this movie out there. Maybe you'll get to see it someday. That's <laughs> not a comforting idea when you go into what your movie is. Uh, no. Nope. That that's the and narrative that Clive Barker's night for you. The there's a better version of this movie is the narrative that they've been trying to push for the Justice League movie for the past year and a half now. Oh, there's a better version of this. Yeah, you know, Hopefully, you'll get to see it. <laughs> now uh, they're actually finishing up the detail that comes down on HBO Max next year. They're just polishing right. it up right now. But Night Free, God, I wish, after seeing I've Got the Shout Factory with the long cut, yep. I wish we would have got that fucking movie in theater. Now, Night Freed was not the first movie Clive Barker directed, right? He directed the original Second. Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah, he directed Hellraiser. So Nightbreed was his second movie, yeah, that he directed. Obviously, and they, they were both them over hard. Yeah, Nightbreed is another movie that I've never really cared for. Uh, I I like the first half of it, but the second half I kind of lose interest. Um, but I yeah. I do appreciate. What character is not much in the second half? Yeah, uh, well. David Cronenberg's character isn't in it enough for me, you know. Yeah, he's that was he's the one. The that... thing about the movie is that David Cronenberg was fucking amazing. 
Like, yeah, that he one was... scene of him standing there in front of the table with all the knives out in front of him and him just looking at it. Yeah. His character was the best thing about the movie for me. And it was intriguing to me as well as a film fan, because I'm a fan of David Cronenberg's direction, but he's rarely in front of the camera. And usually when he is, it's usually a quick cameo in one of his own films or a quick cameo in like a Romero film or, uh, you know, just he's only on screen for like three seconds, you know, uh, John Carpenter, he's done, uh, cameos in John Carpenter films and Romero films. And, you know, so for him to actually have that much screen time, I was intrigued. I wanted to see more of it and they blew his character off real quick. And then, like I said, the second half of the film kind of descends into boredom for me. And that's not, the longer cut? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And I would agree. Yeah. I like it. Next is Tony Scott being Tony Scott in one of the most Tony Scott movies he ever made, which is Revenge. Yeah bad about Tony Scott's style and nothing of the good side. This movie is why we were terrified when we found out that he was directing True Romance. <laughs> yeah. It's like, True Romance, cool, another Santino. Oh, God, the guy directed the fans. Oh, God, no, no, no. Still, when it comes to Tarantino adaptations, I prefer True Romance over uh, Natural Born Killers. But, yeah, I don't know, man. I've never been a huge fan of Tony Scott. Uh, it depends it, on the movie. This year had one of his worst ever written. It's just so horrible. I mean, there's this movie is style over substance. I don't even think this movie has any substance at all. Unless you like looking at Madeline so bad. I think his real style over substance uh, phase really, I mean, all right. right. We've got Top Gun. Let's just get that out of the way. That movie, yeah. it, you know, it's a stupid film that you know, everyone remembers kind of romantically from like, oh, Top Gun, I saw that when I was a a teenager, or, you know, whatever. We were kids when it came out. So people romanticize Top Gun. I hated Gun. it when I was a kid. <clears throat> but I don't know. Uh, and then, like, yeah, you're right. Like, True Romance. I, I do enjoy True Romance. The only thing I don't like about True Romance really is the soundtrack. I think that it, it's probably the closest adaptation that we could have gotten to a Tarantino script, but I think Tarantino, if he had directed it himself, probably would have picked some better music. Uh, you know, Aerosmith can go fuck themselves. I fucking hate that band, so whatever. But <laughs> uh, that's just me personally. And, you know... Again, from my heart, 
I always say to everyone, I'm glad there's enough things in the world that everyone mm-hmm. can enjoy the things that they like. So if you're an Aerosmith fan, no, no offense, enjoy your Aerosmith. I just fucking hate them. But I think that Tony Scott's real style over substance shit came towards the end of his career when he did uh, Man on Fire and Deja Vu, those two movies back-to-back with uh, uh, Denzel Washington. Man on Fire and Deja Vu were good. No, no, no. Those were style over substance. Those movies were horrible. Man on Fire is good. Not as good as the original. Yes, I've seen the original. Yeah. Well, of course you have. I didn't I didn't care for those. Enemy of the State was another one that he did, right? That was another Tony Scott movie. Yeah. Yeah. That one was good. Did you know that that I, was the sequel? There there were sequels to Enemy of the State? Is that what you said? No, Enemy of the State is a sequel. Oh, I didn't know that. Gene is playing the exact same character that he played in Francis Ford Cobb Conversation. The conversation, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Huh. I never really thought about that, but you're right. He obviously is playing the same person that he played in the conversation, yeah. <clears throat> nice. And Moving on, there's one we talked about last week, which is the hunt throughout October, and now we're starting to get into March. We got bad influence, the one with Rob Lowe, but we didn't give a shit about Rob Lowe in this movie. We were like, who is this sleazy motherfucker is the bad guy? I want to see him in more movies. Uh, right? This yeah. the first movie, it was like, who's this James? Fader guy. I like him. <laughs> right? Yeah. I it's so funny. Ad Influence was the first film where he took over the whole fucking movie. Funny to me now to look back at like the 80s and 90s and think about these actors. And I think about like at this point in my life, uh, I'm most. Uh, enamored with Rob Lowe from his performance on Parks and Recreation, and I uh, most enamored with James Spader from his performance on The Office. So these two guys, who both started out as like in like either teen dramas or creepy suspense films, now I look at them and I'm like, <laughs> oh, they're so funny on these comedy shows from the 2000s. <laughs> uh. yeah. And but. next is, let's take one of the most feminist, anti-authoritarian books ever about female oppressed writing the OOs and make it into more of an action film. <laughs> and that's where we got the horrible adaption of The Handmaid's Tale from the 90s. Yeah. It's Thank like goodness. did a remake of Blazing Saddles, but made it into a diehard movie, but serious. Mm-hmm. 
and they wonder why that one flopped. Oh, and next is one of the best comedies of the 90s. House Party. And it's ain't good. It's still good today. <laughs> yeah, House Party. Yeah. I, I'm i into it. I mean... Because it's real. I mean, it's real, real. You know. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I don't... Robin Harris. Yeah, we all... That was... We all had dads like that in the 80s. Well, we could get away with it. He did all that stuff, and then when he got home, yo ass is fine, boy. Because that's what right? happened to all of us. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it had, it's kind of funny because. Uh, Kid and Play, who were the stars of the movie, obviously, they kind of fell off, uh, you know, after the house party film. Because them and the Hustling Brothers broke up. You put them and the Hustling Brothers together, and it was, like, beautiful. Party did have uh, Martin Lawrence and Tisha Campbell, who were, Yeah, I can't. I can't remember the timeline. Was Martin already a TV show then, or did it? I think that no, came later. This is the film that yeah. made Martin Lawrence. Yeah. So yeah, and Martin Lawrence. My favorite sight gags ever, where it shows the oh. uh, two the Hudlin brothers as two crooks running by that. And all of a sudden, right? What the hell happened to Homie Shoe? Right. I always think of uh I always think of the Martin Scorsese movie After Hours when uh whenever they show Cheech and Chong and they're like stealing stuff. Uh yeah. that kinda reminds me. It kind of reminds me of some of those scenes from movies like that. Uh, I definitely, obviously, Scorsese was a fan of like seventies black exploitation films, and then his influence leaked over into, you know, you know the uh, black comedy yeah. films of the eighties and nineties as well. You yeah. know, like. Owen. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the black comedy, that takes us to the next one. We watched the trailers for George the Volcano, or like, oh, this is going to be some cute Tom Hanks movie. And then we watched, I like it. <laughs> right? Oh, I mean, it was like, what if David Lynch made a milder film? I mean, it's a very weird weird movie. And that's why it's good, but they didn't advertise it as that, did they? Yeah. It, I I don't understand how this movie ever got made. I mean, it must... It was just that time in Hollywood, I guess, where they were willing to go out on a limb and experiment with something, because yeah, Joe versus the Volcano is a weird friggin' movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. In a good way. Uh, but it's just one of those movies that you put on that you're like, how, yeah, how did this get made? You know, like. Uh, yeah, how does this not have a cult? <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, but it it is an amazing film. I mean, uh, I can't think uh, the only other credit that I think the director ever had was didn't he write Moonstruck? But he didn't direct Moonstruck though. That was the one with Cher and uh, yeah Nicholas Cage. He wrote that, but he didn't direct it. I don't think he directed another movie in his entire career. I think this was his only no. movie. No. Yeah, this movie is so weird that they just said, no, we ain't going to give you anything again. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're taking our toys and we're going home. <laughs> yeah. So. And they got one of my favorites, which, you ever watched any of the Zatoichi films? Ever watch what? Any of the Zatoichi films about the fine swordsmen from Japan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, in the late 1888 89, Shokasugi tried to get a remake of that series done over here. But, yeah, he did get it done, but he didn't get the star in it. They decided they would put Rutger Howard in it, and we got blind. Which is a very good Zatoichi film. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I yep. love how they kept the darkness and the sadness of the Zatoichi films and not give it the happy ending that you would usually see in the American films. Right? Yeah. Um, I think, and I'm glad when we. We're talking about Blind Fury, and we're talking about talking about the Zatoichi films. Uh, I mean, they made a lot of those uh, films, and I'm glad that they didn't try to cram them all into one movie. Like that seems to be the current idea when when we import, uh, you know, a series of foreign films. We try to cram them all into one movie at once, and they didn't do that with Blind Fury. They, they... The Final Affairs and The Departed? Yeah, they... Well, they... They took pieces from the films, but they didn't try to cram every movie into one movie. That's what I'm saying. You know? Yeah. So, it it balances out, you know? It, it's not, it, it doesn't feel overstuffed. So, it actually... And next is Blue Steel. Go, what, you, what were you saying? Go ahead. Oh, no, I was done. I was done. The whole movie with this Clancy Brown. Otherwise, I just couldn't see Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie as this topic gets her gun stolen by a crazy blonde still woman. Yeah. You know, like, Jamie Lee Curtis kind of made her career with Halloween, 
where she plays, you know, the final girl, which we all know. And, you know, so, and even in the end, uh, after Loomis saves her from Michael Myers, she's still kind of the terrified little girl. And so that's kind of how I always remember her, even when I see her in other movies, uh, you know, where she has a more powerful role. I just didn't buy her in that movie. Um, you know, like, I understand, you know, we're talking about a Catherine Bigelow movie, and, of course, you know, she went on to direct, uh, you know, like, last, what is it, Last Night, or what is the one, Last Night on Earth, or whatever, the friggin', yeah, last, and then she did, now she's doing all those, like, you know, war movies, uh, you know. Yeah. I can't, you know. So, I mean, she's obviously a, uh, she's obviously a tough woman who wants to empower women with her films, which I, I totally think, I think that's great, but I'm just not buying, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it never, they never sold it to me. I I don't know. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to go back a little bit in time. In 1988 is when Canon Films broke up. And Golan and Globus was going against each other, and they sang this new craze, Lombada. <laughs> and so on... March 16th, they put out two competing movies, The Forbidden Dance and Lombada. <laughs> Even if you are a Canon fan, these are suffer. This is deep hurting. One is about Lombada, mixed with a mass competition. Yeah. I love... I love any movie that ends in a dance competition. Uh, no, man. You know. <laughs> Lombada, actually, interesting fact, Lombada has uh, Shubadoo from... Uh, uh, Breaking Two, Electric no, Boogaloo. No, he was Lombada's biggest actor was Sid Haig. Oh, I knew Shabadoo was in one of the movies, yeah. and he was, and he was also in Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo, where they had to have a dance contest at the end to save the community center or whatever the fuck they do in that uh, movie. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. Those two movies, it's sort of safe if you can watch them because these will know a massacre. So these are like stabbing yourself in the gut with a knife for you. I hate myself. I hate myself. <laughs> oh, God. Next is uh, the remake of, uh, well, the second adaption of Lord of the Flies, which wasn't that bad. Not as good as the 
one from the 60s, but it wasn't that bad. No, I've I've never seen a version of Lord of the Flies that I really don't like. This one was, uh, I think my favorite part of the 90s, uh, 1990s Lord of the Flies was that it has, it, it does a really good um, job with the reveal at the end when all the kids are chasing each other across the beach and then all of a sudden they come to the water and they see the rescue boat to finally come to save them. What have you and then they, done? You know, and then they, yeah, you know. I, I think that's the best of all the versions that they've done so far. So far, I think that's my that's my favorite. Like, I mean, obviously, you already know how the story ends. Yeah. yeah. And on two of the worst, well, and one of the two of the worst is my worst film of the year. And the first one is Nuns on the Run with I don't Bobby Coltrane. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, and I really why this movie is is that bad. Yeah, and that it doesn't teach women that if you're a whore and suck a mean dick, you'll get to marry the rich guy. (laughs) The reason why I hate it so much is because I fucking love Monty Python and I don't want to see Eric Idle lowering himself to this type of trash. <laughs> he wasn't a pretty woman, so hey. <laughs> that is the worst film of the year. I, you won't believe how many fights I got. I was with uh, my ex deputy. She said, oh, this is such a sweet, loving movie. I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> It teaches them to suck a good dick. You'll get to marry the rich man. <laughs> yeah, you and I have we. You and I wrote about this uh, when um, when we did our we did our two part uh, blog post. Uh, and yeah, the movie we that, and I think that movie that led to this came up the next year, but. Makes me wonder about them. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in in some ways uh, I can see, uh, I mean, it's hard to really vocalize and talk about because, yeah, the basic message here seems to be you can be a whore but some rich guy might still fall in love with you and and give you, uh, you know, a great life. Uh, and, you know, you and I talked about this, like I said, uh, one of our blog posts when we wrote about the actual movie Whore <laughs> and how that was a pushback to Pretty Woman to show, like, you know, being a prostitute isn't, as glamorous as this movie makes it seem, you know, and I've, I've read various articles about pretty woman and I've seen different versions of the screenplay and it is really strange to look at 
when you see the progression of the screenplay where originally it was a much darker film um, and then somehow they found a way to you know toss a rainbow on it with a pot of gold at the end it's uh, it's yeah. fucked up it's, it's a horrible movie yeah and for it. the record the original ending of Pretty Woman in the script is that she overdosed herself. Right. And then I I thought there was another alternate ending to where he kills himself. Like like his whole weekend with her was like his last hurrah before he killed himself. Or yeah, some this shit. Is like, very dark and nasty movie where they're like, hey, wait. Right. But then I think once Gary Marshall got involved and he's always been he's always been a comedian, you know I mean, happy days and the odd couple and all that shit, so I think when Gary Marshall got probably had a big part in lightening up the whole dark aspects of the script, but still uh, made him lighten it up. He, wanted him, he wanted to keep the dark ending <laughs> No, I never, I never knew that. Like I said, I've seen multiple yeah. versions of the script and I've read different articles, but I never knew that Gary Marshall was interested in keeping the dark aspects. Uh, it w- I mean, yeah. it's not a, ter- it's not a terrible movie, but it's just not, you know, yes, it when it, when it, when, when it comes to suspension of disbelief, you know, like I have to have, I have to have an actual. You know, there has to be a pivot for me when I'm watching a movie and I'm trying to, you know, it's like... Maybe I, I don't watch like girls movie. that have laughs that sound just like an orangutan. <laughs> right? Like, I can't it's remember what... Here's the one that people are so interested in this week, and it's a dark, mean little comedy that never sees them with Michael Caine. I love this mean little fucking movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And what it is yeah. is Michael Caine as a, a schlub who realizes that if he murders everyone that's gotten in his way, you'll get a happy ending. And he does. <laughs> well, see, and this is a this is a funny uh juxtaposition uh with what we were just talking about with Pretty Woman. Uh this was a case where a studio let a movie stay dark but still play out its comedic potential. Um they they could have done that with Pretty Woman. Uh if they had leaned into some more of those dark elements instead of, you know, making it the the problem with pretty woman was that it went so upbeat in the early part of the film that there was no way to justify a dark ending. So they just kept it yeah, going with one thing. Pretty woman was a USA film. Shock to the right. system was a British film. British films are always into darker comedy than us over here. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Yep. 
And then we have Opportunity Knocks with Dana Carvey, which is sort of like one of the... That's one of those things, if you've seen them in a movie in the 90s, you're like, oh, this is the anti-comedy. Yeah, I've never been a Dana Carvey fan, and that hurts me to have to say as a stand-up comedian and a comedy writer, I have never been a Dana Carvey fan. The only thing he ever did that made me laugh was fucking Wayne's World. And I don't mean Wayne's World the movie. I mean Wayne's World when he was on Saturday Night Live. I never gave a shit about the church lady. Oh, no, wait, I take that back. I did like when he did Grumpy Old Man on uh, Weekend Update. That 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 used to make me laugh as well. But that's it. There's only is... one good part, and we'll, this will save us time later, about Wayne's World the movie, and that's Ed O'Neill. He was fucking brilliant. Right. Right. Yeah. Moving on, we got Side Out, a movie with C. Thomas Powell about beach volleyball. Yeah. So basically, somebody watched Top Gun and they were like, let's make a whole movie about the volleyball scene. And moving on, we have one of the biggest hits of last that of 1990, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Um, if you I don't know, the man. original comic, you would be in total shock once you've seen the movie. Yeah, that's the big thing for me is, you know, like, I, you know, I'm a nerd on several levels. I collect comic books. I like movies. You know, I collect action figures and, you know, all that kind of crap. But, yeah, I, I was a huge fan. I've had with uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, cartoon fans. When I say in the comics, Michelangelo fucked me for a whole deal. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's. That's like, kind of the no, same. No, it didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was a big fan of the original Eastman Laird comics, and I, I kind of, I kind of got into the cartoon uh, when it came out because I was in the, I was in the same, I was in the age group. You know, I was, I was in the. Uh, uh, demographic for the cartoon when it came out. Uh, But I, I could already feel it lightening up, you know, from the darkness of the original comic books. And then, yeah. The only problem with the animated series is that it was a sequential series. And I've never seen this and it showed it in its proper sequence. Yep. Yeah. So it'd be like one episode characters that don't show up until another episode is in it, then they vanish for two or three like, what the hell? But the movie uh, was in Yeah. The movie I don't know. I thought the movie was terrible. And that that comes at the end of a long line of me getting increasingly frustrated with the denigration of the original comic. And 
Yeah. You know, talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, when we were talking about uh, movies. And I said, you know, uh, you know, I, I lived in Bangor uh, for a while and I had the occasion to interact with Stephen King in real life. And, you know, yeah. he and I had a conversation about this one night at a party and I mentioned to him, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that, you know, people buy your movies, you know, buy your novels and make them into movies that are terrible. And, you know, he had a really uh, like Zen kind of outlook on it. And he said, Hey, just because you made a terrible movie out of something I wrote, doesn't mean that what I wrote still doesn't exist. You know, I mean, so and to close off there, we have one of the weirdest films to come out, but it's so good, too. And that's The Ambulance by Laurie Collins. Yeah. I love Larry Cohen, guys man. I'm going to have to go to if I need a liver transplant. I'll have to write those guys' numbers down. <laughs> <laughs> I love Larry but Cohen. God told me to love Larry Cohen. Yeah. This movie is bizarre in a good way. For the first third, you have uh, Eric Roberts playing a very creepy, holy shit, the girl kidnapped. The only one can save her is the creepy stalker motherfucker. What the (laughs) hell? I like it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Larry Cohen movies are always kind of bizarre anyway, obviously. I mean, you got Q, uh, you got God Told Me To. I mean, he had, his all of his movies have kind of like shocking, unexpected stuff. Uh, what, what was, has he, I don't think he's made a movie did he pass away? I haven't seen a new Larry Cohen yeah, movie he died. for quite a while. Yeah. He died yeah. right when the documentary came out. Right. Yeah. I figured because I haven't seen a new movie from him for years. So. And now we're I figured, in June, and this is weird because we're still not. Last, 1989 was Batman, and it was a big summer hit. But you still haven't seen the summer blockbuster really start to kick in yet, have you? No. No. So the opening view we have you know the Alan Smithy film Catch Fire, which was directed mm-hmm. by Alan Smithy. And you know who he is? Yeah, it was directed by Dennis Hopper. <laughs> no, because he changed his uh, movie so much that he took Alan Smithy credit. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know that's the real story, but I was just saying, I know it was actually directed by Dennis Hopper, but yeah, I don't blame him. I mean, yeah, it is a... Uh, it is a really uneven flick. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take credit for it either. Uh, 
but the copy of it that I have isn't called Catch Fire anyway. Uh, the one I have is Backtrack. Uh, yeah, that was the one when they released the VHS and Showtime. That's the one that had right. the bizarre scene of uh, uh, Dennis Hopper playing saxophone while uh, what Jodie Foster is uh, self-pleasuring herself. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting movie. Uh, it kind of reminds me, not not thematically, but uh, what was that weird movie that had Bob Dylan and Devo in it, where they like, where there was like a nuclear war? Um, it's not Catch Fire. Or backtrack, as you, however you may know it. Yeah, it's not thematically similar to that, but it has a lot of just like weird, random people. Like, like Catch Fire has like Vincent Price is in it, Charlie Sheen is in it, Joe Pesci is in it, Bob Dylan is in it. It's a, I mean, it almost. Bob and, Dylan, I mean, uh, Alex Cox, John Turturro, Fred Ward. Yeah. Alex Cox is in it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fred Ward. It 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 almost seems like um, what when like when Dennis Hopper directed uh the last movie, it almost seems like mm. this was another one of his just out of my mind on drugs. Let's get a bunch of my friends together and make a movie kind of thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's the vibe that I get from it, you know. Amazing to watch. 
it looks beautiful. Yeah, it's a great film. But, and, not, but how sad is it that they have an NC-17 because it killed the cook spot? It wasn't that the guy was cannibal. Hell no. It wasn't that he fucking ate the guy. No. It wasn't that he's earlier in the film. No. It was a fucking three-inch Yeah, nowadays you can show full frontal nudity. Yeah, nowadays you can show full frontal nudity, but male yeah, or female, in an R rating. Well, not like you were a full film, but this was the first one that really started the whole we need a new rating and we need to get rid of the X rating. Contrary. Right. No one was camera. No one was hardware. Henry was yeah. one of them. You mean hardcore? Uh, to defend a beautiful art film like the Cook Seat the Life of His Mother than it is to defend Henry. You gotta pick your back. And you the know, thing you gotta pick which kill is gonna die. The thing about the Cook uh, the thief, his wife, and her lover is it's often marketed as like a drama film, but it's actually to me it feels a lot like um like kind of some of the light hearted um i mean I know there's a darkness to it, but to me it kind of feels like uh you know, one of those kind of like rom-coms from like the 1920s or, you know, 1950s or something like his girl Friday, you know, because there, it, it, I guarantee. It's sold as a porn too. Yeah. Right. Like it, it kind of feels like there's some like slapstick goofiness going on there. You know, I do. I, I, it feels like the best Coen Brothers film that the Coen Brothers did not direct in the 80s, you know? It it could be, like, that same kind of vibe to it, you know? To me, anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Cisco and Ebert, everybody on the air were... Fighting over this movie. There are people fighting over this movie right now? What? <laughs> yeah, they were just going to leave, but they were fighting over this movie saying that giving it an X rating was stupid and unjustified for the reasons they did, which is true. Right? I didn't hear you say Siskel and Ebert. I thought you just said people are online fighting over this no. movie right now. I was like, really? All these years later? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you and I are the only two people in the world discussing this movie right now. <laughs> yeah. And next is the worst film that John Waters did in the 90s. I know you like it. I think it's a horrible piece of crap, and that's Crybaby. 
Yeah, I don't love it. I mean, I'm a John Waters fan, but, I mean, he's made, of of course, he's made a lot of movies that I love more, but he's made movies that I love less. Um, I think, I think the allure of Crybaby to me, I think, uh, kind of stems from my love of David Lynch movies because it has that kind of weird, like Twin Peaks vibe to it, you know, where it seems to be taking place in modern times, but everything's got like the fifties vibe and the soundtrack is real cool and laid back. Um, it's definitely not my favorite John Waters movie by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, I don't know. I, I like it. Okay. I don't think it's terrible. Um, I think John Waters went through a rough patch, uh, you know, for a while before he got back on track and started making, really enjoyable movies again. Um, like... No, I followed oh, this one up with Serial uh, Mom, which is one of his best mainstream movies. Yeah, I but like Serial we'll Mom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Even John Waters says he regrets the scene of treated hatchet face. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, most of John Waters' films, you know, he'll he'll say straight up, John Waters will say, you know, that these movies were inspired by the movies that I grew up with. And you can see, obviously, you can see a lot of inspiration in in Cry Baby, you can see a lot of, you know, inspiration from like 1950s, uh, you know, teen gang movies, you know. Uh, so, but it's a little heavy handed. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't come out in the wash, you know. Uh, John Waters has a really peculiar sense of humor and, Sometimes I don't think it lands, you know. Again, I'm a big John Waters fan, but sometimes I just don't think his sense of humor lands the way that he wants it to. And, you know, this movie doesn't really do it for me. I like it okay, but it's not something that I'd reach for on a Saturday afternoon when I was looking for something to watch, you know. And that's probably it for the movie tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about 90 before we go off the air, but yeah, we'll continue this in another show, but is it mad because it seemed like 1990 side is the ruckus caused by Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and uh, the Cook to Seat the Wife and Her Lover was a placeholder year? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of a weird, I mean, you know, you and I talking about it and you and I doing some research about it to look into the movies. It was kind of strange for me, uh, like looking back over the movies that came out in 1990. Yeah. It, 
it kind of seems like the like Hollywood didn't have a lot of faith in the movies that they had to put out because they kind of yeah they kind of just threw out a lot of stuff and like you and I mentioned earlier some of these films had been completed in the late 80s and they were just sitting on a shelf and then all of a sudden you know the studios were like well we got to have something to put yeah. in the theaters yeah yeah, do you think Heart Condition would have ever gotten made if uh, Bob Hoskins hadn't got a big hit with New Frame Roger Rabbit? Right. <laughs> but we really won't start to see the impact of Batman in 
I guess whatever you already pay for, you can either get it or you have to rent it from video on demand. They'll probably do it like they did uh, uh, Mulan on Disney, which is you got to buy Disney Direct. Okay, we got Disney Direct. Now you got to pay us 20 extra dollars to watch Mulan. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's like. Guess what? We went. Okay. That's a funny thing. so, yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have Hulu, Amazon Prime, and Netflix. And uh, one of the guys I work with lets me use his Apple Plus account. And, uh, oh, we also have Shudder. So, yeah, um, we were we wanted to watch that new Judd Apatow movie, uh, King of Staten Island. And we kept checking on Amazon prime and it was fourteen ninety nine to rent it. Like seriously for weeks, it was fourteen ninety nine to rent it. Well, one day we took a walk down to the, uh, to the, uh, store, uh, the pharmacy, uh, to pick up a few things. And, I just went and looked at the red box and there it was for a dollar 99. It's like, I don't understand how these distribution methods work nowadays. If you're trying to rent it to me for 1499. Yeah. It's like a service that I already pay for and you're trying to rent it to me for 1499, but I can walk down Two yeah. blocks from my house and rent it for a dollar ninety nine. Like, what the fuck, dude? Ridiculous. We're going yeah. through Veruca Salt syndrome now, and you know what that is, don't you? <laughs> well, I know Veruca don't Salt. Care how I want it now. <laughs> using that against us. Yeah, you can wait yep. and pay a decent price and pay cheap, but you can or you can get it now. Now, right. look how shiny mm-hmm. now is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now. You know, uh-huh. that's yeah. how they made money off Bill and Ted. Pay twenty dollars to watch it now. Now. Yeah, that just that just popped up today on uh, one of my streaming services, and I'm not gonna lie, I I. I I didn't really care for the second Bill and Ted movie, but I do want to watch this mm-hmm. new one because I am I am uh, fans of you know uh, Winters and uh, Keanu like well, you I'm know so I do want to do that new bizarre one with uh, Nicolas Cage doing Kung Fu against aliens. Yeah. I just saw the preview for that uh, yesterday. I can't remember the name of the movie, though. That, that's, yeah. That'll be fun. So. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's where they got us by the short hairs. We want to see the new stuff, and we want to watch it now. You got everyone, like, right now they're going to have a lot of people out of short hairs. It's like, Oh, I remember every Christmas we go out, we go shopping, we go to a dinner after we go shopping, then we go to a movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's also, what the blockbuster syndrome has built up into us. Oh, it's summer. We want to go see a big movie. It's you know we want to go see a big Christmas movie. The Christmas movie. Right. And then they got the art yeah. films. Yeah. You know, oh, we want to see a film that the that's going to be nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know what it's like where you live. Uh, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but I just assume that the area that you live in, you don't have, like, we live in a big city here, so we can just walk a couple blocks to a movie theater or a restaurant or, you know, like I said, the red box. Yeah. We don't, you know, we don't do it as much as we used to because we've been, no. you know, I work at the post office during the day. My wife works at the hospital at night, so we're kind of trying to show the reason all the votes got fucked up in Maine. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The votes, we we ended up with a Republican Senate and a Republican House, but, hey, you know, I try not to get too political. I told you not to smoke weed and... <laughs> and sort the mail at the same time. <laughs> did you listen? You're right. You're right. Well, you know, I still, but, yeah. I still, so, made, well, don't forget, I still I made 45 sure minutes from Knoxville. When it was uh, bustling before Corona, it was like we had art theaters. We had the Little Weird Theater, which was central. They would show the little weird movies and stuff, and we'd have the mainstream theaters. Then we'd have the the Turkey Creek one, which is the one that showed the event movies, like the like Godzilla, feel rain really fall on you, feel the ground really shake, <laughs> right? Go see Rocket Man and feel concert level volume, and that was <laughs> yeah. We have one. We have one movie theater that's about half an hour away from here, so we actually have to drive to that one that shows all the art films, uh, you know, anytime you see like a, like a, some artsy film coming out, that's the place you're going to see it. But we do have a movie theater right here in our neighborhood. That's just a big multiplex, but they haven't, they haven't been open obviously because of the coronavirus. So yeah. we don't get to, you know, we don't get to go. Um, and it sucks because it was a really nice movie theater. It had like, uh, yeah. you could buy your tickets ahead of time and they had recliners that you could, so you could pick your seats and go and recline. And you know me, you know me, brother, I would go to the movies with my wife, sit back in the recliner. She would watch a movie and I would take a nap. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and you'd be dreaming about the days when you could go to the midnight shows and smoke a big fat one while watching some weird-ass movie. Well, I probably smoked a big fat one before I went to the movie, and that's why I dozed off while my wife watched Avengers. And then, you know, I'd have to wake up at the end and be like, did Iron Man die? Is Iron Man dead? Oh, he is? Oh, okay. <laughs> But right now, where we are in 1990, we're not at the multiplex one. If you wanted to go to a multiplex theater, you would have to go to the shopping malls. Most outside the multiplexes were just two or four screens.
screen. Yep. To have one uh, in a strip mall uh, where I grew up that only had two screens. So you got to pick one movie or the other. And I'm not lying about this. 90% of the time, one of the films was an X-rated film. And the other one was like the biggest blockbuster playing at the time. So, for example... They probably both made about the same amount of money. Yeah. So, but imagine how weird it must have been for my parents. I was too young to understand what was going on. But we'd go to the movie theater, and there'd be a bunch of people, you know, like going into Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the other uh, people... Uh, I'm trying to think of a funny... Raiders of the Lost Ark that could also be a porno movie. <laughs> well, let's but, yeah. Edward Penis Hands, because that one's never going to be touched. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. But, yeah, it was if weird. you're lucky, you'd be go, like, go on your date, 12, 13, and you'd be like, yeah, we're going to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then your girl leaned over and whispered, I think we go to the porno theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you went there enough, they wouldn't give a shit. Uh, right. Hey, eventually, hey, that, how you doing? <laughs> eventually, that movie theater switched over to 100% porno. They stopped fucking around with E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back, and they were just like, "Fuck it, we're we're full porno now." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And then yeah. So we won't be back we won't be on next Wednesday because all the shows and the torment will probably will be on next Thursday, which is crap giving. I will probably be doing by the vote so far the ecstasy purple double feature of well, horse, if horsemen power you, what if footmen power you? What will horsemen do in the burning hell? <laughs> and possibly we'll be doing a Blood Lake with Fred if I can talk him into it. He's still fighting. But yeah, or I'm going to be doing a new introduction into the fine feathered friends of Blood Creek, which with me in gore filth and Nate. We'll be watching the Thanksgiving Day classic, Blood Freak. Blood Freak. Yes. <clears throat> That's the, you know, every time there's a holiday, I get the day off from work. And so I always Google, you know, <clears throat> horror movies for whichever particular day it is. Obviously, you don't have to. A Google Friday the 13th because you know what horror movies are going to come up. Obviously yeah. Halloween Halloween you can watch any horror movie you want but when it comes to Thanksgiving horror films I never have to ask Google anything because Blood Freak is the only Thanksgiving horror movie for me. Yeah. And with that Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening, and stay safe this holiday, and don't be a dummy. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night.